And welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. I'm Justin. And I'm Josh. Josh, what's going on, man? You know, not too much. Just getting back from Boston. I was at a history professional development last week, so the highlight was going to Lexington and Concord, and I got to go to Fenway Park, which was pretty awesome. I, I saw your pictures you sent me, and that looks freaking awesome. Yes. Uh, the green monster. Is it, is it, in fact, large and green and a monster? Yes. Very large, very monsterish. I did not wear my blues gear. To, I wear my blues gear everywhere else in Boston, but in Fenway Park, I did not want to die. I mean, so. I was going to say, that's pretty brave of you, if you just wearing it in Boston, period. I got some flack, you know. I went to uh, I went in front of the TD Garden and took a big picture with my Blues gear on my Blue Stanley Cup championship shirt. So they're mostly nice. That's that's pretty good. I'm I'm actually kind of shocked by that. No offense, Boston. Yeah, people. We know you're all listening. Yes. (laughs) Well, I just got back from Louisville. Which have you ever been to Louisville? I have. I went there for a wedding a couple months ago. Yeah. So we do. It's 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 awesome. We do an annual golf trip with a bunch of fellas, and uh, yeah. So this year we kind of. We went to Jim Beam. We actually stayed in Indiana. We have an amazing park right on the waterfront. It was just a pretty fantastic trip. I, I you know, I know Louisville is known for its for its bourbon, but uh, they got a lot of other things to offer. They got good Dr Pepper there too. You good know, Dr. I mean, yeah. Really? I didn't. I mean, okay, all right. I'll take your word for it. I'm not a big soda drinker. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big bourbon drinker. So there we go. Yeah. So next time we go, we'll go together, and I'll have a Dr Pepper, and you have bourbon. It'll be a up. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay. So, uh, you know, what have you been nerding out on? Yeah, so I just uh, read a book called Backlash. It's by Brad Thor. It was published June 25th, 2019. It is a series. It was the 19th book in the series about a guy named Scott Harvath. He's a former Navy SEAL, former Secret Service agent who's now just like a black ops operator for uh, a private contractor, United States government. And uh, I finished it in a day. I read the whole book in a day. It's uh, probably the best book of his series. So how many pages is that? It was four hundred pages. So I'm, well, I can't really judge because I'll finish the whole series in a day of TV. But of, yeah, of television. <laughs> but you know that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So what have you been nerding out on? So I watched. Speaking of of binging, I didn't do this in one day, but it was not much longer. I watched the third season of Jessica Jones. And I know you're you watch you've watched those shows the the Marvel Netflix. Shows. I gotta get caught up in all of them. Yeah. Well, this one was pretty great. Uh, it, it debuted November twentieth. I'm sorry. It actually, the, the series has been running since November twentieth, two thousand fifteen, and this most recent season debuted June fourteenth, twenty nineteen. Um, like I said on Netflix, it was created and produced by Melissa Rosenberg, who also was the screenwriter. You'll like this for all the Twilight movies. Oh yeah, I love that. That's love what it. I thought you'd appreciate yes. that. You know, I know you're a big fan. You read those novels. I have so. read those novels, actually. It was a real bonding with my wife. She liked them a lot. <laughs> um, I won't give you all of my... Anyway, we, don't, we, need to talk, we won't talk about Twilight right now. But she also produced Dexter. That's a great show until the end. Yes. Yeah, maybe the worst finale of all time. Wow, and that's saying something for you because you're so anti-Game of Thrones that... that I mean, I that, said one of the worst One of the worst. Okay. I didn't say the worst finale. <laughs> if you don't know about the show, it basically follows... It's a, it's a, it follows a, a superhero pretty much if you want to call her that. She's essentially a private investigator, kind of chasing down people in New York. But she's kind of like the anti-hero. She hates being a hero, and she's kind of mean, and she kind of beats people up, and is rough around the edges a little bit. Yeah, I think she's a great character. I really think you know you get tired of the kind of you know Captain America, amazing guy. It's kind of cool to see somebody who's different and anti-hero. 
Right. What's well, the whole Defenders? I mean, all mm-hmm. of them, and those are all the, the the Netflix shows. So it's sadly they've all been canceled now. Yeah. Well, I've heard there's some some rumblings that we might see some of those characters pop up in the DC or the MCU. So I hope so. Fingers crossed. Well, some of the just some of the stars real quick. Again, if you haven't seen it, we've got Kristen Ritter who plays Jessica Jones. She's from Breaking Bad and a bunch of other things. Rachel Taylor as Trish Walker, and she's in the Transformer movie <laughs> movies. We've got uh, Eka, sorry if I'm butchering that name, Darville, who plays Malcolm. Carrie Ann Moss, which most people know from The Matrix, is Jerry. Uh, John Ventimiglia, who is known, it plays Detective Costa. He's from Sopranos, and he plays Artie Bucco, if you've ever seen that show. And one of the best uh, villains, which isn't actually in this season, is David Tennant, who plays, is really known for Doctor Who. He plays Kilgrave. We've also got Rebecca De Mornay making an appearance as Dorothy Walker. I remember Rebecca De Mornay from the Three Musketeers, the yep. Disney Three Musketeers, which I loved that movie growing up. I, I was that was, that was when I fell in love with Chris O'Donnell. I think. Yeah, and Kiefer's in there too. Kiefer really? Sutherland's in there. Jack Bauer. It's just a great, great movie. Anyway, it's a great show. And season three, I think season two for me was not the best in the world, but I, I think season three really had a great comeback. So. If you like Jessica Jones season one, check out season three. Cool. All right, well, so let's get into what our topic is going to be today, which we're going to talk strategy board games. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm a big board game player. Yeah, so we, we've kind of picked a few of our favorite strategy board games. Obviously, there's a lot of different board games, but we thought it best to kind of discuss the, the I don't know, the nuances of some, you know, intellectual games, I guess. Well, we're intellectuals, I mean, so clearly right. that's what we're doing here, so, so yes. This kind of falls right into our wheelhouse, wheelhouses. So Very right, intellectual right there, yes. You know, yeah, that's right, I'm good at grammar, I do grammar good. So, let me ask you a question, do you think that when you're playing a board game, there are a lot of times where maybe there are rules that are up for interpretation, do you think that... You should follow the rules of the game, or is it okay to create your own house rules? I think if you have a group of friends that you play it with or your family, you can have house rules. But if you're going to like some random person's house for the first time, yep. you need to follow the the house uh, the uh, the game rules. Okay. What about you? Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way. I'm kind of a stickler for rules. So I, I, I believe it or not, actually, I mean, I'm really get the rule books out and read them to everyone. Oh, I can totally see you doing that, actually. Yeah. I believe that well, 100%. I think that rules should, are made to be followed. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So I'm, I'm all for that. But I also think there are times where, where house rules, you know, for example, Trivial Pursuit. There are times where that game can go on forever, and we we often will make up rules where you don't necessarily have to land on the pie piece. You just have to land on the color to maybe get the pie. Mm-hmm. After a, an hour or two of playing the game, it just it's a long one, right? So yeah. that would be an instance where maybe switching around the rules slightly. So another example of that yeah. is my Uncle Joe, who hopefully you're listening, Uncle Joe, they used to play Monopoly, and he didn't want to lose so bad that he started just borrowing money from the bank he just started oh i'm gonna i'm gonna take a loan out from the bank and he just kept taking money out and loan and loan and loan so yes sometimes you need the rule book out and ready to go yeah i don't i think that might be stretching a little bit yeah yeah i think usually he's a lawyer you only have i mean a he's an attorney so you know how that works so he was extended the an additional line of credit because yeah. he's good for it right? yeah long term yeah all right well whatever works uncle joe <laughs> all right so fun fact before we just get started in general here 
Uh, there's actually studies that show board game players have a 15% lower risk of developing cognitive decline and dementia. Yeah, and, I, and those, there's similar studies out there for, for video games, too, and I, and I think that totally makes sense, right? Yeah, for sure. I think so, because you keep your mind working and going on. So Occupied. All right, we're gonna, our first game, we're going to get into Risk. So how yeah. do you play it? Risk. Okay, so in Risk, there's two to six players, and it's a game of like diplomacy, conflict, and conquest on a board that depicts the political map of the world. It has 42 territories, and you go to six continents. And what you do is you're going to control armies. You get to pick a country, you get to control armies, and you try to capture territories from other people. At the beginning of your turn, a player receives reinforcement armies. Proportional to the number of territories held, you get bonus armies when you continent and oh, continent when you hold whole continents, and then you hit to turn in cards to get additional armies as well. Right, and, and we should mention that the continent that is not included is Antarctica. Yes. Which Antarctica really gets kind of the short end of the stick here. But Who probably wants to not, conquer Antarctica? Though? Probably not the best continent to car- conquer, so... Players form and dissolve alliances during the course of the game. So there's, you know, there's strategy there if you want to possibly work with additional players. And the goal of the game is to occupy every territory on the board. Yeah, just some, some quick strategy. The rule book here, you know, Justin's probably read this and memorized it because he's a big rule book fan. I have. It recommends the following. Players should control entire continents to get the bonus reinforcement armies. Players should watch their borders for buildups of armies that could imply an upcoming attack. And you should build up your armies on your own borders for better defense. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about rules for attack and defense, capturing a territory depends on the number of attacking and defending armies and the associated probabilities. So in battle, the player has more armies has a significant advantage. And basically you roll die against one another and the defenders win ties when the dice is rolled so there is a little bit of advantage for the defender if there's a tie but they have less die to be playing Mm -hmm. against the attackers if they have more armies generally you don't attack a location if you have less armies than the the place you're trying to attack that just kind of goes that's Mm -hmm. war in general i would think i think we have need to have like a nerd is a new cool live podcast event where we just play board games you know we'll just have to do that i think i'm all for that remember what you're lucky we didn't do a live video game challenge i don't remember that i don't remember that what happened to that yeah i don't yeah. blame you i would black that out and push that out of your brain as much as possible we'll play madden next time all right, okay all right challenge accepted okay so let's get into some nerd facts risk was invented by french film director albert lamorese sorry france and was released in 1957 as the conquest of the world in france the Parker Brothers bought it in 1959 and renamed it Risk, the Continental Game, then Risk, the Game of, the game of Global Domination. And then they released a new version in 1986, and it was called Castle Risk, and it depicted 18th century European castles instead of a map of the world. It failed, but I'll be honest with you, I would really like to get that game, the castle game, because I love 18th century Europe. I'm actually reading a book about 18th century Europe right now. That actually ties into Outlander, which we talked about a couple podcasts ago. Yeah, I wonder how many of the castles are, are based on real-life castles. Yeah, I, I think that would be very interesting to get. Pretty awesome. So, uh, you know, a little bit more history as far as the years, the evolution. In 93, the rules for secret mission risk were added to the U.S. edition. And in 99, the limited special edition release happened in France, and it was called Risk Edition Napoleon. So obviously that was commemorating the 200-year anniversary of the Napoleonic era. 
Yeah, I think the French just like to look back. I remember when they were good at fighting wars, and then now they, you know, they surrender in every world war. So I like Man. to make fun of France. I Shots love, fired. That's, yeah, okay. France gets made fun of. Uh, if you're yeah. listening from France, I have a buddy of mine that's that's probably going to be listening or has listened, okay. and he lives in France. All right. Well, you know, you guys are good at revolutions. That's good. So I'll, I'll tell him that. Okay. Uh, Risk has created versions around franchises such as Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and Transformers. There is even a Game of Thrones Risk, which I would love to get and play, as well as Walking Dead. That'd be fun. Yeah. And then there have been several video game versions of Risk. There's one on Sega, PC, PlayStation, Game Boy, Nintendo Switch, and Xbox. There's also an app for your phone, which I need to download because that'd give me something to do on my phone instead of Clash of the Clans, which I haven't played for a while. So, yeah, well, and there's all, and there's there's a lot there are a lot of games that have been inspired by this global domin- or domination and Lux. They're also two games, but they don't have the permission of Hasbro, yep. so there are there's slight kind of spinoffs of it. Yeah, and then you know I think the strategy games are extremely popular in today's world. You think of all the online video games that we play, like Justin just said, and it spun off from Risk, all the strategy games. I remember playing a game called Rome Total War on the PC, which was awesome. So all those games have kind of spun off from Risk. Well, even even Warcraft, which eventually became World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. that's basically a, a video version of, a digital version of, of Risk. Yeah. So with the orcs and humans, pretty mm-hmm. awesome. There is a little bit of pop culture reference. Uh, those of you who are Seinfeld aficionados, there's an episode, uh, episode 98, where Kramer and Newman are duking themselves out in a game of Risk, which any Kramer and Newman uh, scene together is pretty great. Yep. And then it was being played in the movie, Stephen King movie, Christine, about three-fourths of the way through the movie. So let's look at uh, personal connections and why I love it. So I'll start. This was the game I picked, one of our my games. Um. In my junior year of high school, my friends and I played Risk five nights in a row on spring break until like 2 a.m. in the morning. So while most people are out, like, you know, going to Florida, we're at my house. They were stealing my Oberweiss, uh, my Oberweiss chocolate milk. I still am a little frustrated about that. But playing Risk until 2 a.m. in the morning and it's some of my greatest memories of high school. So this is, you said junior year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was cool. I was really cool. Yeah. You know, it was me. I'll like, let I'll let the I'll let the audience pass their own. Yeah, judgment. you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know if you remember Jeff Haberberger, Brad Puff. I remember yeah, those guys. Blaze. We were all sure. over at my house playing Risk. We were really cool, as you can tell. Obviously, yeah. I'm sure everyone out there believes that. As yes. Well. And so then another reason I'm a huge history buff. I've kind of already said this already, but I love reading about Europe and empires, and it's just a fun way to look at history, and then get some strategy as well so yeah i i love playing risk i'm really excited about this nerd is a new cool live podcast that we're going to do now so yeah well and i actually used to play a version of this called warfish and it was essentially a website but you could add a link to your homepage on your you know whatever smart device you had and and it was just like risk and what would happen is you play your pieces and it would send an email notification to the next player and then you would just kind of go down the line we'd have games of 10 people sometimes games of just three or four so that was kind of a fun game. Cool. All right. Well, game number two. This is this is one of my favorites. Probably my favorite strategy game, and that's the game of chess. You a chess guy? Uh, not really. I don't get paid to play like you do, or you know, I don't get paid to sponsor it. So. I have I have been paid to play. Not not that well. 
Yeah. But I supervise. You know, in St. Louis, we're kind of like the chess capital of the world. Aren't we I mean, are. We have we a are. lot of Webster University as a team that's really good or something like that. Yeah. So. No, the, the, I think the Chess Federation is based out of St. Louis, down, down off of uh, Central West End. Nice. Which is a pretty, it's a pretty cool space, actually. So the way you play the game, it's a two-player strategy board game. It's played on a checkerboard, much like checkers. Checkers, you, you probably like checkers. I'm a big checkers fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's got the same thing. It looks exact, exact same, 64 squares arranged in an 8x8 eight eight grid. Chess pieces are divided into white and black sets, and each player begins with 16 pieces. You get a king, a queen, two rooks, two knights, two bishops, and eight pawns. Yeah, and each of those pieces moves differently, so they can't do the same thing. So a pawn can move forward one space, two spaces if it's a first move, and diagonal if you're capturing a piece. The king can move any direction one space. A knight, is that the horse, right? Yes, yeah, that's the horse, my favorite favorite yeah. piece. Can move in an L shape, one plus two. The bishop can move diagonally any number of spaces. The rook can move vertically or horizontally any number of spaces. And then the queen can move in any direction by any number of spaces. So I think that's interesting. The queen is like the MVP, basically. Yeah. Which in my life, my queen is my MVP. So. All right. Yeah. I mean, um, (laughs) that's very. All right. Anyway, the objective is to checkmate the opponent's king by placing it under an inescapable threat of capture. Basically means you don't actually attack the king, but you put it in a situation where it can't move anywhere else without being killed. And actually, it is under attack, but. It also cannot escape that attack. That attack. Yeah. yeah. And so, anyway, so throughout the rest of the game, your job is to basically attack and capture the opponent's pieces and also defend yourself. Cool. So that's the strategy. Yeah, and so in addition to checkmate, a player wins the game if the opponent resigns or in a timed game, it runs out of time. Right, and that's so, another house rule type thing. You can there are there are predetermined time limits, but usually they're pretty long. But you can actually play. There, I mean, there are speed chess games. I've played games that are just one minute long, and you get so one is that, minute. Is that like how many pieces you're able to get then in a time game? Whoever has more pieces, or no, it's whoever runs out of time first, or whoever loses. Oh, okay. So if you have a minute, you have one minute of playing time. So you basically are playing as fast as you can while slapping the clock. If you run out of time first, then you lose. But if you are able to capture the other the other players or put the other player players uh, king into checkmate, then you also win. Okay. So it's kind of a double way to lose or win. Interesting. Yeah. So there are different parts of the game. The first part of the game is called the opening, and this is essentially the development part. Your your job is to most people's job is to set your bishops and set your knights and set your pawns into places where you can control aspects of the board and generally you want to control the center of the of the board and that's you know another thing you're trying to think of is the king's safety you're trying to make sure the king is put into a spot where he's protected from all angles and you also have backup positions on those players so a lot of times you'll see certain um certain players setting up their pawns in the middle of the board, moving their knights and bishops into strategic places and then putting their king in a spot where either they are able to castle or guard it with kind of more powerful pieces. A lot of it's pawn structure as well. I don't want to. It's we can get into this forever, but the opening is really important mm-hmm. from a chess player's perspective. Yeah. Well, and then you have the middle game, and that kind of starts when most pieces have been developed, and that's when you're really trying to build your strategy. You know, so 
Right, and so you, you've the middle game is is generally the longest part of the game, but at, n- near that, the end of the middle game, you start getting what's actually called the end game. This is where pawns are more important. The end game usually revolves around promoting the pawn. If you can get the pawn, your pawn, to the far end of the other, uh, the rest of the board, you can actually exchange it for a different piece. You're also trying to get to the point where the king is still remaining safeguarded while also attacking the other player's king. Okay, yeah, let's get into uh, some nerd facts or history about chess. Chess is believed to have been originated in eastern India between 250 and 550 BC in the Gupta Empire, where it is early form in, six, in the 6th century was known as, I apologize for my... Chaturanga. Chaturanga, okay, I don't apologize. Yeah. Which is literally four divisions of the military, infantry, cavalry, cavalry, Elephants and chariotry, represented by the pieces that would evoke in the modern pawn, knight, bishop, and rook, respectively. Yeah, and the earliest evidence of chess is found in the nearby Sassanid Persia around two around six hundred. Sassanids. Oh, Sassanid. Sassanid. I like Sassanid better. Yeah, that's not how you say it though. Right, history sorry. history nerd over Sassanid. here. Sassanid. Where the came where the, where the game came to be known by the name Chatrang. And you can you can kind of tell a lot of these games are the names even are kind of influenced by one another. Yeah, and then so the oldest archaeological chess artifacts are ivory pieces, which were excavated in ancient Afrasiab, which is today's Samarkand, in Uzbekistan, Central Asia, and it dates to about seven sixty, with some of them are possibly older. Yeah, and they found some chess manuals, the oldest ones in Arabic dating 840 to 850. That's a long time ago. That is a long time ago. Then around 1200, the rules of Chatrand started to be modified in Southern Europe, and around 1475, that's kind of when the game that we know today essentially became into knowing, into being. Right, so pawns gained the option of advancing two squares in their first move. Bishops and queens acquired their modern abilities, so kind of an evolution of the game. Yeah, and the queen replaced the earlier Vizier chess pieces towards the end of the 10th century and by the 15th century become the most powerful piece. Consequently, modern chess was referred to as Queen's Chess or Mad Queen Chess. Right, and I already mentioned castling, but that was derived from the King's Leap. Usually in combination with a pawn or a rook move to bring the king to safety was introduced. And, and again, these rules started spreading pretty quickly through Western Europe. Yeah, and then, you know, the rules for stalemate were finally finished in the early 19th century also in the 19th century the convention that white moves first was established formally either white or black could move first if you don't know what a stalemate is it's basically a tie it's it's no no side can win perhaps there is only a king and a rook i'm sorry a king and a uh, and a knight on each side which means there's no way to possibly put the king into checkmate or there's only a king and a king on... There's a lot of different ways where a stalemate... Or the king is put in a situation where the, it's the only pawn piece that can move, but it can't move without being in check, hmm. which happens a lot. So stalemate comes around pretty big. The actual first generally recognized world chess champion, his name was Wilhelm Steinitz. He claimed his title in 1886. Yeah, so the birth of the sport was a Prague-born, who Justin just talked about, the Wilhelm Steinitz, began in 1873, 1873, described how to avoid weaknesses in one's own position and how to create and exploit such weaknesses in the opponent's position. Right, and since 1948, the World Championship has been regulated by the Federation Internationale des Eches. It's the F-I-D-E, 
basically it's the game's international governing body. They also award lifetime master titles to skilled players, and the highest of that, you've probably heard of this before, is called the Grand Master. I have heard that. Yes, and then since the second half of the 20th century, chess engines have been programmed to play with increasing success to the point where the strongest programs play at a higher level than the best human players. We, we should... I don't know if you're going you're gonna to keep talking about that. Sorry. I was going to talk about the IBM. Yeah, the Deep Blue. Computer Deep Blue was the first machine to overcome a reigning world chess champion when it beat Garry Kasparov in 1997. That's just the beginning of machines taking over the world. You know, they're taking over chess. That's my yeah. conspiracy theory. Skynet is coming. Well, just you be should, ready. You should read some good articles about supercomputers. It's, it's, I'd probably get too out. scared. Yeah, I probably don't want to. Honestly, I might not leave my house ever. Yeah. So. Well, well, you better turn all your electricity off then. If that's <laughs> no the kidding. case. Destroy your phone. We should mention Robert James Fisher, also known as Bobby Fisher. He was an American chess chess grandmaster and the eleventh world chess champion. And a lot of people consider him to be the greatest chess player of all time. Okay, and then Fisher won the world chess championship in nineteen seventy two. He defeated Boris Spassky of the USSR in a match held in Reykjavik, Iceland. Publicized as a Cold War confrontation between the U.S. and the USSR, it attracted more worldwide interest than any chess match before or since. Kind of like when Rocky fights Drago. You know, I mean, that's the yeah. same thing, you know. Well, it was that era, right? Yeah. Uh, Fisher did a lot of things. A lot of, had a lot of contr- contributions to chess in the 90s. He patented a modified chess timing system that added a time increment after each move. So... It wasn't an automatic time change. You had an additional built-in time. It was pretty, you know, it was pretty good. Good addition to chess. Yeah, let's get into some quick impact of the society in gaming. In the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance, chess was part of the noble culture. It was used to teach war strategy and dubbed the king's game. Yeah, and there are all types of. I mean, chess is taught, you know, to all types of kids in all different levels. It's a lot about strategy. It's a lot about problem-solving, innovative thinking. Teams and schools have chess teams and organizations, etc. The current world chess champion is Magnus Carlsen of Norway. And the reigning women's world champion is Hu Yifan from China. Right. Uh, should mention real quick that there is a distinction when you see GM, that is Grandmaster, and IGM is the International Grandmaster. And as of 2018, there are 1,725 active grandmasters and 29 or 3,903 international grandmasters. The top three countries that have the most grandmasters are Russia, U.S., and Germany. Awesome. Yeah. So let's look at uh, some pop culture where chess has been in. First one is 2001, A Space Odyssey, Blade Runner, War Games, From Russia with Love, Independence Day. And Harry Potter. It's in two Harry Potter movies. Yeah, it's also featured in X-Men. We've got a a version of it in Star Wars A New Hope. It's huge in Shawshank Redemption. And, of course, the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. Yeah. Uh, So since this is your game, tell us, why do you love this game, the personal connection you have with it? Well, I I did play on the chess team for for my high school. And you make fun of me for playing Risk. Well, we were state champions. Oh! But in all fairness, well, to defend myself, the, the type of people that were on the chess team at the time were not your prototypical, what you would consider chess team players. Not that not that there's anything wrong with that. Did you wear a beret? I did not wear a beret. I've never owned a beret. I'm happy to state that. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Right. So. 
I also had the, the 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 opportunity to start a chess team when I taught at Afton High School, and we had a lot of great players. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a fun it's a fun game. I still play it with with friends, and I have friends that teach their uh, their kids, and I plan on teaching hopefully my future kids, and as well as my uh, niece and nephew. Cool. Yeah, for me, um, one of the first things I remember about chess is Saved by the Bell. You remember the episode where Screech? I just watched it. Yeah, Screech <laughs> defeats the Russian because Screech is smart. So I, I just remember that. Have, have you? Have you? Have you ever? Have you ever watched the Funny or Die? Zach Morris's trash. I have. Yeah. So the there's an episode about him talking about and the things that he does. I mean, he kidnaps. He basically like commits like an international crime. Yeah, because he, he kidnaps the he guy. He kidnaps the guy, poses at him, hides him in a closet. Uh, it's just you get like arrested for that in today's world. They let a lot of let go in the nineties, right. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Also, uh, my family and I used to go to o- we go to Oberweiss. You ever had Oberweiss before? It's an ice cream place. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing, and they have chess boards there. And we would sit, and I would beat my brother at chess. So, because I think he was on your chess team or something back in the day. Yeah, he played a little bit. Yeah, it was a cool thing to do. Yeah, that's the word I would use for it. So, yeah. All right. All right. Game three. What do we got? We have Clue. Oh, I love Clue. Clue's a great game. Okay, so. Clue has three to six players, and it's a murder mystery game. Kind of a classic whodunit. The game has a board that has rooms, corridors, and secret passages of an English country house called the Tudor Mansion in 1926. It has two six-sided dice, colored playing pieces that represent characters, miniature murder weapon props, three sets of cards, solution cards, and detective notes for the players to keep detailed notes during the game. And there's some pretty well-known players. We've got Miss Scarlet is the red piece, Mr. Green is the green piece shocking colonel mustard is that's right the yellow piece professor plum you can probably guess is the purple piece miss peacock is the blue piece and mrs white is the white white piece piece? the white piece right yeah so then we've got weapons you have the candlestick knife or dagger it's been called both a lead pipe a revolver a rope and a monkey wrench and there are finally rooms there's the kitchen, the ballroom, the dining room, the conservatory, the cellar, the billiard room, the library, the study, the hall, and the lounge. Yeah, and so how you figure out who the bad people are, at the beginning of the game, you have three cards. You have one suspect, one room, and one weapon are chosen at random, and then you put those into the special envelope, and those are the facts of the case. So that's the where it was, who did it, and what did they use. Right, and the object of the game is to deduce the details of the murder and basically guess who did it with what weapon and in what room. Yeah, for example, it was Professor Plum in the dining room with the candlestick. Yep. Okay, so let's look at some nerd facts here. Right, so Anthony E. Pratt applied for a patent for his murder mystery game and presented it to the, uh, is it Waddington? Yeah. Waddington executives who immediately bought it and retitled it Cluedo. Yep, and it was renamed Clue in the United States by the Parker Brothers in 1949. Yeah, way better name. In Pratt's original version, there were supposed to be 10 characters. And there were also 11 rooms in the original version. Right, so a few changes there, probably to make it easier for us Americans. Yeah. <laughs> Cluedo was originally marketed as the great new detective game and quickly made a deal to license it as the great new Sherlock Holmes game with permission from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, or his, there, his estate, his yes. estate. There's eight editions that were published between 1949 and 2002, including many travel adventures. 
Yeah, it's had a ton of impact on society and gaming, right? Yeah, so one of the ones, it's just kind of a fun fact, it was one of the first game to use sound effects on the board and stuff like that. So that's just an interesting, fun fact. Yeah, and it's such an iconic game. It actually created murder mysteries that we know nowadays that you can participate like live murder mysteries yeah which you ever done one? i've never done one of those i would like I to haven't. do that no, you know, like we just did the escape room i think next time we need to go do a murder mystery we should do a murder yeah. mystery i'm very competitive though like i'm gonna guess the the winner or the, uh, the, the murderer we'll see about that so, <laughs> yeah uh let's look at some pop culture so there have been several video games that were developed for the xbox 360 nintendo switch the atari sega etc there's also a clue for apple iphone right I need to mention, of course, the 1985 film version called Clue. It's a comedy based on the murder of a man named Mr. Body. It grossed only $14 million, didn't do so well at the box office with the critics, but critics, but it really has a cult following. And it's actually, it was actually released with three different endings. So let me ask you a question. Do you know the name of the butler, Tim Curry's character? I do not. His name is Wadsworth. Wadsworth. Yes. Okay. Oh, I remember that now. Fun, yeah. fun, fun fact for for you and for everyone out there. Yeah. Uh, they also made a mini series, which was released on the board game based on the board game in 2011, and they had a very youthful cast in it, kind of re enlivening it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the 1986 documentary called Clue. You know, and again, there have just been so many different films that have come out. We've even got Murder on the Orient Express, Murder She Wrote. I, you, who knows what inspired what, but there's obviously some some the, the concept of what Clue kind of offers as a board game obviously has some type of impact on on just all types of things pop culture. Yeah, and so for me, my personal connection and why I love it, I played the game the game growing up in family settings for hours on end when we were growing up as part of our family game nights. You get really competitive. You get to play with it a lot. So it's just a lot of fun to sit. A lot of family memories sitting around playing Clue. Yeah, for me, it was the movie. Uh, that movie nice. is just, I think it's hilarious. I don't know why didn't people didn't want to watch it in the theaters. I'm glad it has a cult following. I, I just remember watching it growing up, and it's just fantastic. Tim Curry is amazing. Really, all the characters are, are great in it. And, yeah, so that got me going, and now I'm a big game nighter. And we have played that before. Generally, I'm one of the only people still left playing it because it is kind of slow. Yeah. But, again, I have to win. You want to win. I will guess who did what with what in what room. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we're on to our last game. And the last game we're going to talk about is Battleship. So, real quick, how to play the game. It's basically a guessing game for two players. It's played on ruled grids. I've seen paper versions of this, believe it or not. Wow as well as a, a plastic board of some sorts. Each player's fleet of ships, including the battleships, are marked. The locations of the fleets are concealed from the other players. So you can't see where you put where the player, the, your opponent, put their, their pieces. And your job is to call shots at the other player's ships. And basically, the objective is to destroy the opposing player's fleet. Mm-hmm. And the grids are typically square. They're usually 10 by 10. And the individual squares in the grid are identified by letter and number. I've read like a, I've I've listened to podcasts and also read an article about this that there there's there's a real psychological strategy and people claim like if you set the board up in certain ways you will based on the character and things the person you're playing against there's a way you can basically win almost every time because your job is to arrange ships and then you record shots by the opponent and you also record shots by yourself you're just kind of you're kind of trying to read the person where they're going to mm-hmm. put these pieces and guess correctly 
Yeah, yeah, because before each game is played, you have to arrange secretly, like you said, ships in the primary grid. Right. And so each ship is 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 arranged either vertically or horizontally, nothing diagonally. And you can actually put them right next to each other, too. Yeah. And then the number of squares for each ship is determined by the type of ship. The carrier has five squares. The battleship has four. The cruiser has three. The submarine has three. And a destroyer has two spaces. And so we would take turns guessing a, a spot, a shot, basically, on the other person's grid. Yeah, and if a ship occupies a square, the owner of the ship must announce a hit. Likewise, if no ship occupies a square, the player must inform of a miss. And once all of the squares of the ship have been hit, you have to say, that ship is sunk. Yep, and you win when you sink all of your opponent's ships. Yeah, I, you like this game? I love this game. I, just, I, I don't play it much on actual the board game as much. I play it on my phone a lot. There's an Apple iPhone like that you can play with people that we play a lot. So. Really? We yeah. used, I used to have a little pocket one that my brother and I would play on trips. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's give you some nerd facts about this game. The game of Battleship is thought to have its origins in the French game La Tique, La Atique, played during World War One. Although there have also been parallels drawn to E.I. Horseman's 1890 game, Basilinda. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. the first commercial version of the game was Salvo, which was published in 1931 in the United States by the Star X Company. And kind of the version we know now, in 1967, Milton Bradley introduced their game with plastic boards and pegs. Yeah, and then... That's the method of play involved using peg boards as miniaturized plastic ships and was thought of by a guy named Ed Hutchins. Ed. That's pretty clever, Ed. Should mention that Battleship is actually one of the earliest games to be produced as a computer game. And it was, there was a version actually released for the Z80 CompuColor in 1979. That is, is that, an old Is that the version computer. you play with... Oh, yeah. Your, your you know, brother? <laughs> yeah, I, you're my, my computer that takes up my whole room, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 So then, <laughs> using dynamic programming, it has been determined the number of ways that a player can set up their boards is 30,093,975,536, where the two length three ships are considered to be distinguishable. That is uh, pretty crazy. That's a lot of ways. That really is a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So since 67, the Battleship board game has sold more than 100 million copies. Yeah, and more than 155 million Battleship game pieces are created by Hasbro every year. Lined end-to-end, this would stretch over 1,500 kilometers or the length of approximately 5,300 Iowa-class Battleships. That's, that's crazy. Battleship is actually produced in 29 languages and sold in more than 40 countries. Yeah, and so just for some quick impact, there was a 1985 commercial that aired and it featured the line, you sunk my battleship, which remains a popular phrase to this day. And you got to say it more like the kids, you sunk my battleship. Yeah, I mean, that was it was always fun to be able to say that. Yeah. There have been a few other versions in 97, or I'm sorry, in 1977, Milton Bradley also released a computerized electronic battleship. It was followed in 1989 by an electronic talking battleship. So actually, I remember having this when you would hit a spot and if it wasn't the ship, it would go miss. And if you hit it, it would go hit. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, you can. I mean, I, that was a perfect rendition. Mm-hmm. I that think. Right. That was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got a career in voiceovers. I do. I do have a face for radio. I've been told. In 2008, an updated version of Battleship was released using 
Hexagonal tiles. Cool. Yeah. Pop culture. Have you seen Battleship the movie? I have seen Battleship the movie. I couldn't make it through the whole movie. It was rough. It was rough. It's got uh, Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights in it, though. Taylor Kitsch, great actor. Yeah. So it's <laughs> it's not good movie. Guys. No, it, w- it wasn't the best yes. in the world. Yeah. Um. Quick question to you. Yep. What Batman movie had a battleship scene in it? What Batman movie had a battleship scene? They oh, were... it's the original Batman the movie, right? Nope. Batman Forever. Really? Jim Carrey, the the Joe, the Riddler is blowing up Batman as he's coming in, and then he goes, "You oh, suck my hit, battleship." Yeah. That is right. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. I, so, I, 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 I do think there's a reference in Batman the movie as well. Oh, but, what, but, I, but I could just be envisioning mm-hmm. him on a boat. Yeah. That could also be. And, the, and he's chasing after a submarine. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Jim Carrey, you sunk my battleship. I love, I love Batman forever. Yeah. That is one of the better earlier Batman movies for sure. I don't know if I want to call it. I don't know if we want to call it like one of the better. But it, it's just maybe it's nostalgia. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy watching it a lot. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Tangent. Yeah. So why do you love this game? So I just like it because the strategy, and again, a lot of my stuff goes back to family. We'd grow up playing it with family. I still, even now, my sister and I play a lot of Battleship over the iPhone. So it's just fun to play and think and try to use some strategy. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. Again, back to nostalgia with my brother playing on trips and vacations and things like that. Uh, We should throw out a few honorable mentions of some strategy games we we didn't talk about. Yeah, I like Life. It's one that I really like. It's a great one. Monopoly. They have a millennial life now. Oh, they do? Yes. I, I like to see what that's all about. Yeah. I, I just said Monopoly is a good strategy game, which some people will say there's not a whole lot of strategy. You just roll the die, and then you basically buy every property, and you end up winning. But I, I don't know. I think there's some there strategy there. could be more there. than that. There could yeah. be more. Yeah. And then uh, Stratego is another very famous strategy game. Stratego. It is, it is maybe the best game. I wanted to talk about it. But you have never played it, and I didn't want you to feel left out. But yeah. that is my favorite strategy game of all time. It is fantastic. We'll play that at some point. That sounds good. Yeah. All right, let's get into some nerd outreach here. Yeah. That's right. We're already done. Yeah, I mean, this was this rolled by quick. Yeah. So uh, thank yous. Our fans out there, thank you for listening. Tony Moiko, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> Give you a little shout out there. We will, uh, you know, I have to thank my wife and daughter as usual for letting me do this. So, as usual, thank you. That's well said. Yeah. Just as always, if you have any future show suggestions, please send them in to nerdisthenewcoolpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tag us on any socials with the hashtag nerdisthenewcoolpodcast. Yeah, and some ways to contact us. You can like or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Nerd is a New Cool Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Nerd is a New CO2. And listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Nerd is a New Cool Podcast. We're pretty easy to find if you look for us. So. We are, yeah. So, uh, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah. Good show, Josh. It was a great show today. Yeah. Have a good, have a good day, guys. All right, until, until next time. Bye-bye.